Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 210, Lost Wonderland with Stephen Wilk. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be joined by the author of a new book about Wonderland, the early 20th century amusement park at Revere Beach. Dr. Stephen Wilk has deeply researched the investors and entrepreneurs who bought 27 acres of land along Revere Beach Boulevard and opened the park. The inventors behind rides like Shoot the Shoots, Hell's Gate, and Love's Journey. And the people who ran attractions like a firefighting demonstration, a Wild West show, and a model Japanese village. His new book, Lost Wonderland, The Brief and Brilliant Life of Boston's Million Dollar Amusement Park, reveals all of that as well as changes in the broader economy that doomed Wonderland nearly from the beginning. After opening in 1906, the park went through periods of success and bankruptcy in a meteoric run that lasted just four short years, while leaving a major cultural impression on the Boston area, and Revere in particular. But before Dr. Wilk joins me to talk about the rise and fall of Wonderland, I want to pause and thank our latest Patreon sponsor, Josh L., Dedicated listeners like Josh commit to supporting Hub History with a contribution of $2, $5, or even $10 a month. Their ongoing support means that we can cover expenses like keeping HubHistory.com registered, updated, and secured, tweaking our recordings to make our guests and me sound as good as possible, hosting our audio files with a reliable and experienced partner, and backing up our local data to make sure we're covered in case of emergency. We appreciate everyone who helps us cover our costs. If you're not yet sponsoring the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. I'm joined now by Dr. Stephen Wilk, an MIT-trained optical engineer and the author of How the Raygun Got It Zap, Medusa Solving the Mystery of the Gorgon, and a young adult novel called The Traveler. He's also the author of an upcoming book on optics from Oxford University Press tentatively titled Sandbows and Blacklights, which will attempt to untangle the layers of mystery and misinformation behind the true inventor of the modern blacklight. His latest book about Revere's Wonderland Amusement Park is called Lost Wonderland, and it's available as of October 30th at your favorite local bookstore or online. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been perusing your new book, Lost Wonderland. In the introduction, you, you describe your first encounter with Wonderland as a, as a tea stop. You're on your way to Revere Beach. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what your first impression was of Revere Beach and then how you got from there, from wondering about Wonderland in the 70s to, to writing a book about Wonderland? Well, I was an undergraduate here in the 70s, and I decided to ride the blue line out to its end and walk up and down Revere Beach. I grew up in New Jersey. I'm familiar with the Jersey Shore, and Jersey Shore is boardwalks, and you've got the rides, you've got the kitty rides, you've got the miniature golf, uh, the games of chance, and all the food stands and everything. So I came to Revere Beach expecting to find that, and what I found was practically nothing. I am told that there actually were a couple of things, but I swear I did not see them as I walked up and down the beach looking for them. It got me wondering. Years later, I started uh, going to um, the Revere Historical Museum 
the Revere Historical and Cultural Preservation Society has a museum down there on Beach Street in Revere. And um, I was just fascinated by the stuff that was there, and I wanted to find out where these things had all been located and when they were there. So I started started digging up all this information. The story was just so utterly fascinating, especially the people that were involved in it, and I just kept going. And finally, when I finished the book up, I started looking around, and fortunately, I found the University of Massachusetts Press, and they were they were taken by it, and they decided to publish it, so it all worked out pretty well. So the story opens on Memorial Day weekend in 1906 with the opening of the Wonderland Amusement Park. What would a visitor have seen as they walked through the gates and and came inside this brand new, sparkling, completely never-before-seen amusement park? I figured this is a good place to start the book because it would immerse the people in the experience immediately. And you'd start wondering, what is all this stuff? And it was something new for the people back then. This was when uh, amusement parks were just getting started. A couple of amusement parks had opened in the general Boston area a year earlier, but this one was north of Boston. It was much easier access, and it was bigger than the other ones. This was after the Coney Island parks had made a big splash, and everybody wanted to have something like that in their own backyard. So this was uh, Boston's Coney Island. What were the other parks that were open in the Boston area by that time? Was Paragon Park one of the ones that was? Paragon Park down in Hull had opened the year earlier, and Norumbega Park out in the had opened. In fact, the day Wonderland opened was the day Norumbega opened for its 10th anniversary. So I had a lot of competition, but Wonderland blew it away. The crowds there were bigger than any of the parks. They were bigger than Revere Beach would see for another quarter of a century. There were two entrances. There was one near the beach, and there was one that was supposed to be the main entrance on Walnut Street, Walnut Avenue. If you're familiar with the Revere area, there's something called the Wonderland Marketplace Mall. That mall and its parking lot are where Wonderland Amusement Park was. And the main entrance and the administration building, where both were Marshalls is right now. So you'd enter through what would now be the back of Marshalls, going on a bridge over the railroad tracks. So it was like entering a castle, going over the, the drawbridge of the moat. And when you got inside, you know, they had the crenellated towers and the castles and the uh, the flags and everything. It really was very much like going into a castle. When you got on the other side, there was a lagoon in front of you. That was the splashdown pond for the Shoot the Shoots ride. Every amusement park had to have a Shoot the Shoots ride. It was a very tall tower, about 70 feet tall. And these these flat-bottom boats would slide down on a skim of water and would go skipping across the water like a thrown stone. Now, I was shocked to read that there had previously been a shoot-the-shoots type ride in Boston's Back Bay. There had been, right about where Symphony Hall was. Was it a standalone attraction or was it part of something else? It was a standalone attraction. That was when shoot-the-shoots first came out. They started becoming very popular around the 1880s, 1890s. And uh, a fellow by the name of Paul Boynton had been uh, pushing them, and he patented his own, and he put one up in Chicago, and then later on he put one up in Coney Island that was the the basis of the Coney Island uh, attractions. You know, I I was a Back Bay tour guide for years. I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Back Bay, but that was a a new one on me. (laughs) Yep. But this one was bigger. This was the biggest shoot-the-shoots in the world. It had been built for the 1904 St. Louis Exposition, and uh, they bought it. And uh, there was a little bit of anxiety when they were shipping it here because they shipped it on six railroad cards, and two of them had gotten lost. But they found them in time <laughs> to put it all together. So you had this thing, and this was the centerpiece of the park. Shoot the Shoots rides were the centerpieces of several amusement parks put up at this time. 
But directly across was this building, pink building with four minarets. It was the, the beautiful Orient. And right next to it was the ballroom and um, uh, restaurant. Next to that was something called Descent into the Hellgate. On the other side of it was um, the Lamarcus A. Thompson Scenic Railway. That was another very big deal back then. Yeah, so tell us about the Scenic Railway. It's not exactly the, the Mount Washington Cog <laughs> Railway. It's a whole different concept of a scenic railroad, right? right? This is a sort of proto-roller coaster. When I first saw pictures draw, pictures and drawings of it, I thought, well, that can't be what it looks like. That's a drawing <laughs> by somebody who doesn't know what a roller coaster is. But no, I've seen photographs of them since, and they did look like that. It has a very gentle up and down uh, thing to it. It doesn't go violently side to side. It doesn't go way up high and then shoot down. It just has this gentle undulations, and it took you about maybe an eighth of a mile to a round building. You went into the building, and inside there were scenes of Venice and other cities. And then it would come back out, and it would take you back along this undulating trip back to where you came from. There had been a scenic railway on Revere Beach before this, but it wasn't a LaMarcus A. Thompson scenic railway, the guy who invented it. So this is the first LaMarcus Thompson railway there. By the time Wonderland closed, there were three LaMarcus Thompson railways along Revere Boulevard. You mentioned that there was a a scenic railway on Revere Beach before Wonderland. So that makes me wonder, what environment was Wonderland opening up into? What was Revere Beach like before Wonderland? Revere Beach was becoming the entertainment mecca. It had been built into a, a park area. What happened was that uh, one of Lamar, uh, one of uh, Frederick Law Olmsted's protégés, Frederick Law Olmsted was the great park designer of the 19th century. He built Central the Park, the Emerald Golden Necklace Gate here park, in Boston, yeah, and yeah, the Emerald Necklace here. Uh, one of his uh, his uh, protégés was a fellow named Elliot, and what he did was he arranged to buy up all these shacks that were along Revere Beach, had them torn down, and uh, moved the, uh, the the narrow-gauge railway that had been built down a little bit farther and put a boulevard, a broad boulevard down there, and forbade any building along the seaward side of it, uh, facing broad sound, so that you would have an unbroken view of the beach. But he didn't say anything about the other side, and that's where people started putting in attractions. And a lot of things went in there. In fact, there's, there's, there's a host of material here for other books. Lewis Bopp put up his carousels. Carousels, we can't imagine it today, but they were hugely popular back then. People would actually come to the beach just to go to the carousel. You wouldn't think a merry-go-round was so popular, but it was. And uh, another fellow by the name of um, uh, Ridgeway, he had a submarine ride, but it was a phantom submarine ride. It wasn't really a submarine. He just gave you the impression of being in a submarine. And he put in something called the Nautical. He He had a fun house in it. And they had a ballroom and a whole sorts of other things. So you had all these things that were starting to go up there. And way up at the northern end at Point of Pines was the original amusement area for Revere Beach. That had gone up in the 1880s. And that all this other stuff closer down was now starting to siphon public attraction away from Point of Pines and towards the actual beach area. You had a fledgling entertainment area that was going up there. You had rides like the Johnstown Flood. And um, the the old mill ride, and uh, like I said, these carousels and the scenic railway and other things. So that whole area was an up and coming area. And when J.J. Uh, Higgins, who had gone into real estate, found himself in possession of about twenty five acres within a block of Revere Beach, 
all in one in one in one big chunk. He realized he had a place he could put his park, so that's where it went in. So what made this particular chunk of land, other than the fact that it was 25, 27 acres that were contiguous, what made it so desirable? Because it wasn't immediately on the beach, was it? It was. That was one of the problems that turned out ultimately, but it was close. They built uh, a walkway, very much like the pedestrian walkway now that goes between the beach and the Wonderland Station. Right. Okay. They, he built one like that about 300 yards south of where that one is. And uh, so it could entice people to go there. In fact, that was probably a more popular entrance than what was supposed to be the main entrance because it was on the beach. You had the uh, narrow gauge railway, which ran up all the way to uh, Point of Pines and later on they extended it up into Lynn. That would bring people from Boston. You actually had to take a ferry over to where the narrow gauge started and then you could take it from there right up to the beach. But it was easy transportation. So you had ease of access to a huge urban population. You had this brand new beach that everybody wanted to go to. So it was an enticing environment. One of the problems, the the biggest problem really, was that where they wanted to put the park was mainly marshland. Yeah, you wrote that in building the park that there were two big problems that had to be conquered, right? There was fire and there was water. So it sounds like the the water was because you were building on marshland. So how, how was that problem conquered? They built the entire park on a boardwalk that was raised two to three feet above the mean ground level. People were doing boardwalks elsewhere. I mean, the Chicago White City Park was built on a boardwalk, even though they didn't have to contend with a marsh. But it made it very easy to care for the ground people would be walking on. You could just hose it down. I know in the first season, and especially in later seasons, there were some really big rides and and built attractions. Was that solid enough for all those? Well, they didn't build the big attractions right on the boardwalk. The boardwalk was built between the attractions. In order to give them a solid footing for the buildings and for the attractions, somebody came in, they hired somebody to come in and drove, according to one account, 60,000 spruce pilings into the ground to give them a solid foundation, something for it all to be built on. In fact, the buildings of the current Marketplace Mall and Wonderland Marketplace Mall are exactly where many of the buildings from Wonderland were, and I suspect because their pilings are still there, and they're using them to give them a solid foundation. Exactly when, I'm not sure. It's after Wonderland closed, I'm certain, but that area did see a lot of landfill because it's not marsh anymore, and it doesn't flood now. So, J.J. Higgins has this large parcel of land, and he has a vision. Who are some of the other personalities that help him create what we know as Wonderland? The one I would love to know the most about, I would love to know how they met. He met a fellow by the name of Floyd C. Thompson. Floyd Thompson was sort of cagey about his background. If you read the souvenir book or the biographies of him that are given in Variety or in the Boston area newspapers, he just says that, oh, he was connected with some of the large parks in Coney Island, but he didn't say exactly how. At first, I wondered if he was somehow related to the Thompson of the Thompson Scenic Railway or this fellow Thompson who uh, constructed one of the Coney Island parks, but he wasn't related to any of those. He had started out, it turns out, as a pharmacist in upstate New York, but he became obsessed with incorporation. He started founding all these companies, and uh, finally, he partnered with some people doing entertainment business in New York, and I think that's what really did it to him. He said, I've got to build one of these. And what he tried to do 
was to build the largest amusement park in the world. He bought up Steeplechase Park, which was um, the oldest surviving amusement park in Coney Island, and land around it. And with a bunch of uh, financial backers, they'd gotten together about a million dollars, which is a huge amount of money back then. And they were getting ready to build this, and they ran out of money. <laughs> they they could not afford to pay George Tillyou, the the owner of Steeplechase Park, past the second installment, and so he basically foreclosed on the park, and the park went back to being Steeplechase, and it stayed in the Tillyou family up until the 1960s, until in fact it was bought by uh, President Trump's father. Oh, huh. so um. He had he had failed dismally. They ba- they basically went bankrupt. His marriage broke up. I think at this time, and somehow or other, he found J.J. Higgins, or J.J. Higgins found him. But it was a perfect pairing because he may have been broke, but he knew how to raise money. He knew how to set up an organization, and he had the equivalent of a Rolodex with all of the game builders and attraction attractions. Getting the attractions into the park. It sounds like that meant, at times, licensing attractions from their inventors and sometimes just outright buying them. How, how did you go about getting rides and shows and all the different attractions at Wonderland? In? It, it varied from, from place to place. They, Thompson made a trip down to the New Jersey headquarters of uh, LaMarcus A. Thompson and arranged with him to get the LaMarcus A. Thompson Scenic Railway. I don't know who he talked to about getting the, the uh, shoot the shoots, but that was a real coup. There was a fellow named Dr. William A. Cooney who was putting up actual infant incubators in amusement parks all over the country because that was his mission. He wanted to try and save as many premature babies in incubators as possible. And hospitals didn't want incubators. That was against their philosophy. So he put these up in amusement parks, charged admission, and plowed the money back into keeping them going. Yeah, I think for a lot of listeners, it'll be a real surprise to hear that incubators were a key attraction at an amusement park. Yeah, well, you have to understand, the amusement parks at the time, people didn't quite know exactly what they were going to be. They didn't know that they were going to be things like uh, Disneyland. At the time, their model was the World's Fairs that people were having. So they wanted to have like World's Fair-type exhibits, and infant incubators fit in perfectly with that. Because of the incubator, there was also a a full-scale hospital attached to the park, right? Right. Somebody had tried to put up an incubator on Revere Beach a few years earlier. They were imitating Cooney, who had come and given a demonstration at one of the Boston trade shows. And they were closed down. And I suspect it was, although it was nominally because they didn't follow rules, they didn't have capability for taking care of babies, I think it was because people were outraged and thought the children were being exploited. So when Thompson uh, arranged for uh, Cooney to come in there. He made sure that they actually had a hospital. They had the facilities, so they wouldn't be shut down on that basis. Now, it's funny because that's not the only emergency services that were available on site. There was also a, a fire department attached to the park, right? They had a fire department. They wanted, as, I, as you said earlier, one of the great problems was fires. A lot of amusement parks had fires. Two of the Coney Island parks were burned to the ground, and many other ones around the country were as well. Wonderland was incredibly well built from the point of view of fires. They went out of their way to make sure that they had plenty of water mains. They had buildings that were fireproof construction. They used shellac at a minimum. They uh, put asbestos between the, uh, the, the, the sheets of plywood on the buildings. 
and they had their own full-time fire department. And they made sure they flushed the boardwalk every morning. Wonderland never had a fire, never had anything close to a fire. That's very impressive, given the fate of a lot of public buildings around the Boston area. Yeah, and a lot of the ones on Revere Beach, that Johnstown flood that I'd mentioned, that one was claimed to be a fireproof building, but when the old mill next door to it caught fire, uh, it burned down everything on one side, but the Johnstown flood saved everything else. And then the next year, despite its name, the Johnstown flood burned down. So it happened to a lot of places. The One of the last reigning amusements on uh, Revere Beach was the Cyclone roller coaster, and that burned. One of the things they tried to get was a ride called Creation. This had been a big deal at the St. Louis Fair, and they, they brought a version of it for this, one of the Coney Island Fairs, and it was really, really popular. It was a ride that was invented by a guy who was also a magician. He used all these little tricks to to make things really spectacular. And they announced back in November of 1905 that Creation was going to be one of their big events. And then two months later, suddenly they completely changed the design of the park, and Creation wasn't there anymore. Somehow or other, they must have lost it. I don't know how or what, why. People don't like to talk about failures. But they did get the services of a guy named Attilio Pusterla, who had worked on creation and who was also a ride designer. And he was going to put, put two of his rides in there. One of them was called The Descent into the Hellgate, which had already gone up in Coney Island. And the other one was one that he was calling The Razzle Dazzle. But that never went in, unfortunately. Other things went in for, for an entirely other uh, reasons. You had to have uh, sort of Native people shows. They had uh, a Wild West show in Indian Congress, for instance. There were a lot of those that were around. They wanted to put in an exhibit of Philippine natives because those were popular in a lot of amusement parks at the time, but that never went in. But they did have a Japanese village, and they did have the uh, beautiful Orient. So it was kind of like a World's Fair, like I say. Yeah, it's almost a, a culturally insensitive version of like an Epcot today. Yeah, sort of. Um I mean, they were pretty respectful in some cases. They were pretty respectful of the Japanese. They had a Japanese firm come in and build the houses and put up a model of Mount Fuji and everything else. Okay. But the Igorot village, <laughs> that that would have been pretty insensitive. You described an attraction called the African Dodger that was not exactly – can you describe what the African Dodger was? Yeah, this you, – you can look this up on the internet and you'll find a lot of pictures of it there. It is – incredibly culturally insensitive. Basically, somebody would stick their head through a hole in a canvas tent, sometimes with the bullseye painted around it, and people would throw balls at the head. Invariably, this person was black, which is why it was called the African Dodger, and he was supposed to taunt the people to throw the balls and hit him in the head, and he was supposed to dodge out of the way. The balls they used were light. They looked like baseballs. They were fortunately a little smaller and a little lighter, but you still don't want somebody throwing hard balls at your head. And some people would sneak in real baseballs and things. People did get seriously hurt at some of these attractions. I don't know about the one in Boston. But uh, even in Boston, they, they shortly after this kind of thing was going on, people said, we can't do this anymore. And they pa- started passing laws against it. But that wasn't until after Wonderland closed, unfortunately. The descendant of this was the dunk tank. Yeah, we have one at my company picnic. The CEO or one of the high officers usually sits in the tank. We all get to throw the ball. Yeah, and I'm not that accurate, unfortunately. Yeah, and in that form, it's great. I mean, as a charity thing, and you have fun, and uh, it, it's sort of like that. But 
when they first came out, the person who was sitting up there was invariably black. And they called these things the chocolate drop. So it was, you know, it was, it was racist. It was a racist descendant of the violent and racist African Dodger. So as long as we're talking about the different sort of cultural attractions at the park, there was, as you mentioned, there was a Wild West show that performed every half hour. Right. It's not Buffalo Bill's show. It was Lucky Bill or Wild Bill. So uh, William Kennedy, his family was from, uh, they're from the wilds of, I think it was like Ohio. I can't remember exactly where it was. He became familiar with the Indians a little bit farther west and uh, started up a Wild West show with his brothers. Uh, they ultimately ended up in uh, the Oklahoma Territory, and they brought in Indians from various places, including uh, several Sioux. One of them was supposed to have been at Custer's Last Stand, and he may have been. I've identified who he could have been from uh, the list of, of people I found on the internet. The, the interviews are racially insensitive. Again, they're people treating them as ignorant savages. But the, the, the chief who came in was no ignorant savage. They asked him, why are you coming? And he said, well, because uh, we're being paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty good reason. Yep. Pawnee Bill was uh, from a slightly later vintage. He was one of those people who, um, as I say, he had the misfortune to meet his hero. His hero was Buffalo Bill. One of his competitors was Buffalo Bill. And when he met him the second time, he couldn't believe how he'd fallen down in the world. The man was just in a disgraceful situation. Uh, ultimately, he rescued Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill's show was going bankrupt, and the year after Wonderland, uh, Pawnee Bill partnered with him, and they put on a show called The Two Bills. How did Pawnee Bill get that name? I know he, he had some frontier bona fides. Right, he definitely did. He was, like I said, he was an Indian agent too. The, they had a hard time pronouncing his name, but uh, Bill was easy, so they just called him Pawnee Bill after a while. He met his wife, uh, who is you know, a very upper-class sort of Philadelphia woman, but uh, she fell in with the show, and she became a sharpshooter. She was part of the show as well. Both, both these guys both didn't just have Indian and cowboys. They also had chariot races. They had Cossack riders. They had Australians with boomerangs in Pawnee Bill's show, anything from out of the ordinary. One of the things I love about Pawnee Bill is there was a guy named E.E. E. Smith who uh, was from the West. He wanted to photograph and preserve the cowboy way of life because he could see it was vanishing. He came to the Museum of Fine Arts and studied photography as their school of fine arts and learned that Pawnee Bill was right here in Revere. <laughs> so he could take pictures of the cowboys without having to go West. <laughs> so he took a lot of pictures and they still survive. And they're gorgeous. They're in gorgeous shape. Um... I put one of them in the book, and I put a few of them on my website. And what's that website for folks who want to find it? Okay, uh, the pictures, because I could only have a dozen black and white pictures in the book, I put more pictures and the color pictures at a website called www.lost-wonderland.com. Very simple. Lostwonderland.com with a hyphen between the Lost and Wonderland. Pawnee Bill joined the show in... 1908. And I, I guess that would have been the second season. Third year. Third, third, third season. Year. But before we jump that far, I just want to go back to a couple of the other things that were open on day one from opening day. And among them, you know, we've talked about all the precautions against fire that were taken at the park. But yet every day, the park would essentially set an entire city block on fire on purpose. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. got to hear more about this. Yeah, this is 
This, again, was a big attraction at the time. It got started because there were basically fire department trade shows that they had in Germany and in England. And the one they had at Earl's Court in London was really popular because it not only uh, showed what you had, they actually put on a dramatization. They built a set of buildings and set them on fire. And they demonstrated the use of the hook, the, you know, the hook on ladder truck and the nets people would dive into and the chemical fire extinguishers and the pressurized fire things just to show you how they all worked and how effective they all were. And one of the guys who had participated in this was a guy by the name of, uh, Hale. He was a police, he was a fire chief out in the Midwest and also an inventor. And, uh, he was responsible for another thing at Wonderland too, the Hale's Tours, uh, attraction, but, he built his own version of this fire show for the St. Louis 1904 World's Fair. The St. Louis Fair was a big imp- uh, influence on everything that happened at Wonderland. He put it together his own show, and it had the same thing. You had a city block. You demonstrated all these different things. People loved it. They loved it so much that every other amusement park had to have one. Within a couple of months, two of the Coney Island parks had their own Fire and Flames or Fighting the Flames show. So you had to have one of these. Floyd Thompson went to the biggest agent in New York, uh, Armstrong. And one of Armstrong's lieutenants, basically his partner, he had been a performer. So people in the business knew and trusted him. And they arranged for him to go out and build this show. He had been a one-legged acrobat. When he was a boy in Kentucky working with horses, one of them fell and crushed his leg. But he reinvented himself as a wrestler. He would take on all comers at county fairs, and he beat them all. And then he became an acrobat. And later on, he teamed up with another one-legged acrobat, and they did things that nobody else could do because you had to have only one leg. Otherwise, two legs get in the way. And this went on. You know, he, he performed for like 20 years or so. Uh, finally, he felt he was getting a little bit old for this. So he started uh, becoming an agent and uh, working with Armstrong. Thompson set them up in a company in town, and they started putting together the uh, Fire and Flame show. And they built a, uh, a city square with buildings on three sides. It was built with steel backing on it and uh, probably with asbestos. And they would put fire, fire uh, burning material inside the windows. And they got themselves a bunch of actors. And people would come and sit in this enormous grandstand with a huge curtain in front of it, and they'd pull the curtain back, and you'd have this street scene going on. It was like a play. You had uh, the tailor, you had the the fish seller, you had a Salvation Army women going by, you had a, a drunks, you had a street gang of kids that were bothering the drunks, <laughs> you know, and they, people would yell at them, and then a fire would break out in one of the houses, and everybody would go panicking all around, and they had their own fire team that was distinct from the Wonderland Fire Department. An entirely separate one. Just a show with, team. Just a show team with the latest equipment and with, you know, retired fire firemen working at it. And they would come out and they had a chemical engine. They had uh, the, the pressure engine. They had uh, the nets. Whenever in, in the old movies you see people jumping in the nets the firemen are holding, this is where the like, – this is the legacy. This is where it comes from. People had been used to these shows. They start showing up in the cartoons in the 30s and 40s because they knew about these shows. And they would put out the fire. And uh, they would have a show during the day, and they had an even more spectacular one at night because it's in the dark, of course. Uh, and this show ran for two years. 
they knew it was only going to be temporary. After all, the one in the St. Louis World Tour is only one year. Both of the Coney Island shows only lasted two years. So even as these guys were building the fair, they were figuring out how many railroad cards they'd need to ship it somewhere else. But the next year, after the two years, Pawnee Bill's show went up in that same stadium. And the guy who built that went on and put in another attraction at Wonderland. And then after that, he went to Manchester, England, and he put up a Fire and Flame show there. On day one, you had Fire and Flames, you had Shoot the Shoot, the Hellgate, uh, Thompson Scenic Railway, a lot of attractions ready to go. How did the public find out about Wonderland? How did people know to come and see Fire and Flames or whatever attraction? Well, among his other talents, Thompson was an incredible publicist. He was constantly making sure that there were stories in the newspapers about this. Whenever anything went up, there would, there would be a story about it being built. Whenever anything was imported, uh, they would, they, you know, when, when the wild animals came for Farai's wild animal show, he made sure reporters are on hand to report about it. When the Japanese builders were putting up the Japanese village, he made sure that people were there to talk about that. So people were primed. They ran advertisements for months in the newspapers before this opened up. So that by Memorial Day, people were primed. They knew there was going to be something there. They'd heard about it. They'd read all the stories and they really wanted to see it. And at 11 o'clock on the Memorial Day, before people were supposed to get in, they were crushing the gates, especially at the beach side. So they opened the gates early and let them in. So it sounds like probably the opening day box office was good. It was excellent. Yeah. And was the, the first season overall a success? The first season overall was a success. They had something like a million people came the first summer, or a million admissions in any case, because people probably came multiple times. They sponsored special events. You know, Groups would get special discount rates to come in, just like the amusement parks now will have days for different uh, companies. Uh, they had special things going on. They had races that went on at the park and things like that. So there was plenty of publicity. There's plenty of pushing for this to come out. And uh, it, it was it was you know greeted by by uh, plenty of uh, plenty of uh, people coming in. On top of all that, the park was uh, an illuminated at night. I mean, electricity was was a, the up and coming thing. It wasn't that many years before that the Thompson Houston Company and Lynn had joined forces with Edison's company to form General Electric. I, th- I believe you wrote that the park used as much electricity as Cambridge and Somerville combined. Yeah. W- were they generating their own power or were they no, tapping they were into buying, the grid? Okay. They, they were buying it on the grid. They, uh, they, and they had, they, they had their own electrician. They, they designed it themselves. One of the sore points with, um, General Electric was that nobody was, was, uh, buying their services to light these parks or the, uh, the international exhibitions. And that's what led to the scintillator for the first year. They wanted to publicize themselves. They bought equipment from there. They bought a lot of transformers from General Electric, but they put the whole thing together themselves. And most of these parks had a tower of light. Wonderland did not, but it had lights on everything. The Shoot the Shoots Tower was itself practically a tower of light. If you go to my website, there are several pictures of Wonderland at night, uh, some of them hand-colored to show you what it would have looked like with all these colored lights up. And the Tower of Light or the, the lit up shoot the shoots wasn't the only thing drawing the eye. You also had a tethered balloon for much of the season. Fred Thompson himself. Floyd, Floyd Thompson. Floyd, yeah. Floyd, sorry. Thompson himself went 
up in the balloon and pulled off quite a stunt, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. he. Um, it sounds like he was lucky to, li- to live through he, it. <laughs> he was very lucky. He saw the people going up in the balloon, and um, they had hired a fellow who called himself Professor LaRue. Uh, his name was really Joseph Cray from upstate New York, but they all called themselves Professor, and LaRue sounded exotic. Uh, his wife, his third wife, actually, he married all his wives on the balloon. <laughs> uh Christina, invariably called Tiny Luru, went up, and there was another local woman they hired, a local acrobat, who went up as well. And I have a feeling, I don't know exactly why, but I have a feeling that Thompson saw these two women going up and figured, I can do that. (laughs) So, against the advice of the rest of the people on the board of directors who were shocked, he said, let me go up there, and somehow or other, they agreed. So he took off his straw hat, he put on a, a cap, tight-fitting cap, and they tied him onto the trapeze. This is a balloon that didn't have a basket underneath. It had two trapezes hanging because uh, Professor LaRue's act back when he was going on the balloon used to be to go up on a trapeze, and then he would perform acts on the trapeze with no net, way oh, up in the air. that makes my heart go pitter-pat. Yeah, me too. So... But right now, they, they had the trapezes. Nobody was performing trapeze acts on it. But they had a couple of parachutes. They weren't folded up. Their tops of them were simply attached up near the balloon. You can see that in the illustration. I put one on the website. And uh, so he was, they tied him on. I mean, it's a very good thing they did. Because when Professor Leroux fired the pistol to indicate that the balloon should go up, it did with a jerk. And Thompson was jerked off his seat. Tiny, of course, wasn't. She was used to this. And she told him, don't let go. Because they were already so high up, he would have been killed. And he couldn't jump with the parachute because it required about 2,000 feet to open. So he had to wait until they're at least that high up. So the balloon goes up and up and up, and he's holding on there for, for, for dear life. And they got up to the top high enough, finally, they know they're high enough because the rope is paid out that far. LaRue fires the pistol again and Thompson doesn't or cannot let go. He fires it again. Thompson still doesn't let go. Fires a third time. Thompson's finally able to release himself and he floats down and his parachute opens and as he's drifting down he starts drifting over the railroad tracks of the Boston and Maine Railroad that's right next to the park. Just as a train is coming by. <laughs> it's like something out of a movie. Yeah. And he remembered what he had been told and what he'd seen, presumably, with, that you can rock the balloon side to side and move a little bit. So he starts doing this. And by that, and possibly also with the aid of a convenient gust of wind, he comes down to one side of the track and the train goes by, doesn't hit him. People rush out from the park, pick him up and haul him off in triumph. And his arms are in the air mainly because they're paralyzed and he can't get them back down. So they took him back to the hospital. That's near the the incubator. And they massage it. And according to one account, they gave him sort of electroshock therapy. And eventually he got his arms down and he goes and talks to the newspaperman because, of course, he's going to talk to the newspaperman. And he says, oh, it was great. I love it. I'll do it again sometime. But he never did. Well, because in a way, that's Thompson's swan song with the park, because he he doesn't come back after the first year, right? Well, not after the first year. He he stayed on for a while after that. He 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 protested the uh, the, the 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 affair of the scintillator, and he oversaw all the other things going on. And they gave him a gold watch at the end, 
And that was arguably the high point of his career. Because one of the things he was doing, while not telling anybody about it, he was building another amusement park up at Point of Pines. Just up the beach. Just up the beach, five miles up the beach. That was going to be twice the size of Wonderland. And it was going to be right on the ocean, which Wonderland wasn't. I think that's where I got confused in thinking that he didn't come back, because you wouldn't think that would be okay with the other directors. Oh, it wouldn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Once they found out about it, <laughs> what he did was he put a full, he put a quarter page ad in Billboard magazine as if they wouldn't notice it. And his name was in bigger letters than anything else. Well, they found out about it, and I don't have any records of it, but he's gone after that point. So obviously they gave him a chewing out and gave him his papers. And the people at Point of Pines Corporation decided, well, if he's going to do this, we don't want him either. So he he was he was gone from both parks, and he he ended up doing a little bit of agenting in New York, I think. But the next we hear from him, he's all the way on the other side of the country in Seattle, running a place called the Eden Musée, and uh, he ran a number of ventures after that, including another one called Wonderland, out in Los Angeles. Yeah, I didn't realize until reading your book that Wonderland was not a unique brand to our Boston area, that there were, in fact, uh, at least a half dozen or maybe more Wonderlands around the country in different places. That's right. Most of them built about the same time. And the reason they all have the same name, everybody wanted a little bit of stolen glory from Coney Island so or from Chicago's White City. So all over the country, you had parks opening up with names like White City, Coney Island, Luna Park. Steeplechase, even though they had nothing to do with the original parks. One of the the big one in uh, Coney Island was called Dreamland, but it was supposed to be originally have been called Wonderland. That's the name on all the original paperwork. So all these other parks that were imitating it were called Wonderland, including Boston's own Wonderland. So going into the second season, and I, I won't make you go through every season in a, a detailed rundown, but it sounds like the park was on a pretty good footing to start a new season. It, it was, despite having lost their general manager and this guy who was a real ace at promoting things, including himself, J.J. Higgins, the guy who had founded the whole thing and was the park treasurer, got promoted to general manager, which had to be a very weird thing because he'd never run an amusement park before. But fortunately, I think for him, the guy who had been their excursion agent, a guy named Eugene L. Perry, and who was the same sort of extrovert soul that Thompson was, took over as assistant general manager. And I think he's the guy who really kept things going there. But they put in a lot of brand new exhibits. The park reinvented itself almost every year. Some of the big attractions remained constant throughout the entire life of the park, like the Shoot the Shoots and the Hellgate. But some of the things from the first year, the, the, the children's theater, the fatal wedding... Princess Trixie, uh, Ferrari's Wild Animal Show, they're all gone, replaced by new things. And the new things are just as fascinating. Willard's Temple of Music, Battle Abbey, uh, Blake's Wild Animal Show, Under the Sea. They put in a giant aquarium, basically, and they had a guy in a diving suit down there showing off, and they had an escape artist escaping underwater, and you could watch it right through the side of the tank. Yeah, it's interesting that the degree to which the the park had to be reinvented every year. I guess some of that would have been because they didn't have exclusive contracts with some of the exhibits, or they didn't have long-term contracts with some of the others. That's so right. They always had to get something new in the door, right? Yeah, it actually looks to me as if the William Kennedy uh, Cowboy Wild West show 
wasn't even engaged for the entire summer. They kept renewing their contract week by week, so they ended up being there the whole summer. It just wasn't a given that it was going to be. Um, some of the other ones, they had only engaged them for one year, and you know they went out somewhere else afterwards. In a way, this is good, because you wanted to have fresh stuff to draw people in. And the third year, 1908, was arguably the biggest year, because they had so many things going on. They had Pawnee Bill. They had Chiquita the Doll Lady. They had Annette Kellerman, the Australian uh, mermaid, and uh, a host of other things. I love Annette Ke- Kellerman. We did a Years ago now, uh, episode 82, we did a, a show about Annette Kellerman's time here in, here in Boston. But for, for folks who might not have listened that far in our back catalog, will you, will you introduce us to her? All right. Well, Annette Kellerman was, um, she had, she originally had rickets as a kid. Some people think she had polio, but it was rickets. It was insufficient absorption of vitamin D, which lets you metabolize calcium. So the bones don't get strong, your legs bend. They were just starting to learn about how to take care of this, and they probably would have given her like cod liver oil, which has a lot of vitamin D in it. But they put her feet into very heavy iron braces to straighten them out, and she loathed this and hated this. It trapped her in the house. And then after that, after she got the braces off, they wanted her to build up her strength, so they enrolled her in swimming lessons, and she resisted this. She really didn't want to do this. But she found out she was really good at it and became a spectacular swimmer in Australia, and uh, she went to uh, Europe, and uh, she did a demonstration swim down the Thames, and she tried to swim the English Channel, didn't quite make it, but she became very popular. She started putting on shows. She she did diving shows, and she had this uh, costume that looks like modern long johns. It was a form-fitting woolen suit, which I kind of hard to amazing to swim in. But it was much better than the frilly, froofy uh, swimming outfits the women typically wore. And it was, at first, scandalous. It was considered too revealing, even though she was covered basically from wrist to ankle. <laughs> right, but it showed, her, it showed her shape. And actually, this may have been one of the draws in her show, because they made sure they put mirrors all the way around the tank when she did stage shows. You could see her from all sides. Anyway, she uh, she was well-known. There was a story about her in the Revere Journal in the summer of 1907, before she even came to uh, Revere. She had spent, spent the previous summer in Chicago, putting on shows there, and they got her to, for the entire summer of 1908. And so she came and... She did these diving shows. They built a special concrete tank for her someplace. I wish I knew where. I don't. Somewhere within the park, though. She judged swimming contests. She tried to do a swim out to Boston Light, which was, you know, the the holy grail of swimmers at that time. It's still, in a lot of ways, is. There's still a Boston Light swim every summer, and it's it's one of the most extreme endurance. So I'm... In non-pandemic times, I I go to the Y and I swim a mile a couple times a week, and I think I'm a hardcore swimmer. And then I look at Annette Kellerman's exploits, and I'm yeah. blown away. Oh yeah, but she, yeah, she was an, an amazing person. There is a persistent story that she was arrested on Revere Beach because she wore that abbreviated swimming outfit, and uh, they took her into court. And she argued her case, saying, "Look, I can't swim in anything else than this." But the amazing thing is, there is no contemporary record of this whatsoever. Yeah, you know, I I was taken in by this. That that past episode, we told from that perspective, because in her own writing, she talks about this having happened. 
That's but right. then you go back and look at the press. Now I have better access to a lot of the local uh, newspaper da- databases than I did back in the day. And it's not there. Yep. It would have been in the newspapers because they report on other women who are arrested for indecent count- dressing. They reported on when Kellerman was arrested for other reasons. (laughs) If she had been arrested for indecent exposure on the beach of Rivera, it could not have failed to make the papers. There's no police record of it. There's no record of it anywhere until the 1920s. And when it comes out in the 1920s, she's the one who tells the story. She also included it in her unpublished autobiography called My Story, which was used as the basis for the film Million Dollar Mermaid. In fact, the original title of the film Million Dollar Mermaid was going to be One Piece Bathing Suit, as if that was the only thing she ever did. But that was the biography of her at starred Esther Williams, and she was the advisor on it. Uh, and she told the story when she went out on tour promoting this in the 1950s. So she is the one who did it, and I give a reason for why I think she did in the book. I would get into it now. It would take way too long, I think. Yeah, well, she... Not unlike Floyd Thompson and some of the other personalities attached to the park, she she was a master self-promoter, if nothing else. Oh, she was yeah. a, a master swimmer, but also a master self-promoter. And she reinvented herself constantly. She, uh, she had the swimming act. She had the diving act. She was the marathon swimmer. She got into movies early. There are some surviving movies of her. She made one of the first nude scenes. And she did an act where she on stage where she dressed as a man and danced as a man and everything. She was just doing constantly changing her act. For the nineteen oh eight season, you had Annette Kellerman as one of the major draws. You had Pawnee Bill. Pawnee Bill. But you also had events that were outside the control of the park that would have a major effect going forward. What was happening sort of off stage from the nineteen oh seven into the nineteen oh eight season? Oh, well, there are a couple of things. One is there was a big fire in Chelsea in uh, 1908. But the thing that affected uh, Wonderland and also a great many other parks was something called the Panic of 1907. That was very much like the recession of 2008, both in the size and its effects. And uh, it was causing runs on the banks. Uh, it was the biggest recession until the Great Depression. And... It took away an awful lot of people's disposable income. It was finally stopped with J.P. Morgan and several other bankers uh, volunteered money <laughs> to try and prop up a lot of the banks. But by that time, the damage is already done. And the parks suffered. Several of them went out of business completely. Wonderland itself found itself, at the end of 1908 season, bankrupt. That had to be a shock after such a successful season to come right. out on the other end and financial yeah. disrepair. Yeah. Part of the problem is all those big spectacular acts, I think. Um, the successful amusement parks, like Tilly's Steeplechase that kept on going to the 1960s, is that they would have a couple of very big, very expensive attractions that they kept going for a long time, so it would amortize over a long period of time, and they wouldn't have big-name performers coming in. Whereas Wonderland not only had... Uh, at least three big-name performers that year, Pawnee Bill, uh, Annette Kellerman, and Chiquita. They also had a lot of weekly circus performers and the Arcus Ring. So they constantly had people coming in and going out, and they all had to be paid. And would those – I don't remember this from, from the book. Would those have been separately ticketed – would each of those have been raising their own revenue, or have they been covered by the admission into the park? Ah, that changed through the life of the park. If you look at some of the pictures, for instance, you can see that there's an admission price for the beautiful, beautiful Orient, 
There's an admission price for the Velvet Coaster. You had to pay five cents to go onto that. There's a separate admission price to get into the Fire and Flames show. In the later years of the park, they made it kind of like Disneyland is now, where you paid a single price and you got to go on everything. It may have cost money in terms of individual admissions, but had to have saved money in just salaries, right? Uh, yeah, they had separate ticket girls, and they all had official ticket t- ticker girl uniforms. So after the 1908 season, the park is left bankrupt, and then it's advertised for sale in early 1909, then it sells at auction. There's sort of some some financial sleight of hand. How, how does the park get reinvented for the following season? All right. What they did was, they basically, they told all their creditors, look, we're going to auction off the park, and you will be paid basically proportionally out of what we get for that. They sold it for exactly half that cost, but they sold it to themselves. The same people, but a different organization. They now had, instead of the Wonderland uh, company, they now had uh, the Walnut Street Corporation. And uh, J.J. Higgins was still the general manager of it. And all the people on the board were now on the board of this. And uh, Colonel Bartlett was now the, uh, the the treasurer. So you had the same people, but it's a different park. But they sold it for half the amount, so they only have to pay people back 50 cents on the dollar. So they're able to get out of the financial debt immediately. And they immediately issued a sort of austerity decree. They had to shut down things and keep them as cheap as possible. So... The Arcus Ring, the circus ring is gone. No circus performers. They get much cheaper vaudeville performers. Where Pawnee Bill had been, that whole grand uh, area, that whole grandstand with the whole stage behind it, as far as I can tell, didn't have anything going on in it. They didn't have a wild animal show. Uh, They seemed to have shut down the beautiful Japan area. They even shut down the incubators, which amazes me. Sounds like the, there's a core. Some of the major rides are still open. Right. The major rides are still there. The Shoot the Shoots, the uh, Scenic Railway, the Hellgate. The, what had been Hales Tours is basically a motion picture theater. It's still going. The arcade is still there. Sounds like the surprise success of the 1909 season was some of the, the musical offerings. Yeah. They, uh, they had a lot of musical acts. They still had one big musical act. They always had, throughout the first three years of the park, they had marching band that was constantly playing, and they also had the Alice in Wonderland parade with an Alice in Wonderland show. They had, for this one, Cinderella and her golden slipper. And that was that was the big attraction. They opened it earlier than they normally had the show, basically because they didn't have much else. And they changed the show constantly. The guy who was running it was the same guy who put on a lot of amateur theatricals, including the Hasty Pudding Club. And he would change musical numbers every every week. He'd change people around in their roles. He'd introduce things like uh, electrical jump ropes with, with, with lights on them for these things. He got the most recent and popular music, including stuff from this young guy named uh, Irving Berlin. Not yet Irving Berlin, it sounds like at the time. Yeah, Isaiah Bailin. They had some of his earliest and best uh, early, earliest songs, and they're very popular, especially because a lot of them had an opportunity for the audience to sing along, which they gra- gladly did. Sounds like the two biggest hits were "My Pony Boy" and "My Wife's Gone to the Country." Hooray! <laughs> yes, 
To which everybody shouted out, hooray! Yeah, again, that audience participation, right? Yep, that's right. And there's another one called uh, Sadie Salome Come Home, which is kind of weird because they had Salome as one of the shows going on in one of the theaters. (laughs) So against all odds, with this sort of austerity plan in place, Wonderland managed to turn a profit in 1909 after being bankrupt at the beginning of the season. That's right. They got a profit. And uh, they opened for the next year, but the writing was pretty much on the wall by this point. There was a, an article in the, the journal, the Revere, Revere Journal, at the end of the season that seemed to be a bad omen. <laughs> what stands out about that story? It talked about the park in the past tense. In the past tense. <laughs> That's and never good. Meant, yeah, not, not, yeah, this was a great park. Wait a minute, we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean was? People are fickle. And even though they had a bridge that was no longer than the existing pedestrian bridge, people didn't want to walk it as long as there were already attractions right there on Revere Boulevard. In fact, some of the people who had put up things in Revere, in Wonderland, were now putting up things on Revere Boulevard. So they'd be competing with their own rides or their own attractions within Wonderland a few steps away down the beach. Yep. Uh, and Wonderland basically booted out uh, Louis Bopp, who mentioned he already had carousels on the beach. Well, he also had two attractions in Wonderland, and those seemed to be gone after 1908. But he didn't care. He just put more attractions up along the boulevard. And like I said, there were three Lamarcus Thompson scenic railways on the boulevard by this time. People went to them. They didn't go to Wonderland. The one way Wonderland could have made itself stand out was by having spectacular acts. But spectacular acts cost money, and they couldn't afford the money. So they're caught in a a catch-22 situation there. And so for 1910, the writing's clearly on the wall. The park's opening weeks later than than it ever has before. It opens for, for Bunker Hill Day. Right, instead of a Memorial Day weekend. And again, you don't have any of the really big attractions. You do have the permanent rides that had been there, and you did have the stage shows still. One of the things they had, it almost makes up for all the awful racist things they'd had before this. One of the attractions they had there was Matthew Henson. Matthew Henson was the first man to the North Pole. He was Peary's uh, assistant. But by the time Peary got up towards the pole, his feet were frostbitten. He couldn't get there anymore. Henson went with the Inuit guides they had. And as far as we know, he was the first person to get to the North Pole. And the reason that you say that that goes some way toward erasing some of the earlier acts was? Because Matthew Henson was black. And he was he had been a Navy man. Uh, Peary found him when he was working in a store in Washington, D.C., he joined him and went along on his voyages, and he became a very skilled uh, Arctic explorer. He learned how to build igloos. He learned how to run a sled, learned how to you know, make fires and stuff up there. He learned how to speak Inuit. Well, then they get back, and you have to understand, it's not like somebody was paying for the exp- expedition for the most part. They did all this on a shoestring. They had no salary. So they come back, and both he and Perry are broke, basically. And one way you recruit that is to try and do... Uh, a speaking tour, and Peary, Peary turned really selfish. Uh, Henson had a lot of people who had vouched for him, but Peary was kind of nasty and said, no, don't don't go out and give a speech. I'm going to go out and give speeches. But Henson had to survive. He was very lucky to find an agent who said he would take care of everything, and he did. He, he really did a good job for this guy. And he went around, and he gave lectures all over the place, 
And they booked him for the entire year in Wonderland. And if his lecture was like anything else, he had he actually had slides and motion pictures from this. He had the sled that he had and the clothes that he wore. So he probably went out and demonstrated all this, did the slideshow, gave a lecture and everything else. There were some places in the country where he was somewhat reviled or looked down on because he was black, but there's no evidence of that being the case in Boston. He was there at Wonderland for the entire season, and it was one of the things that helped make that season a lot less awful than it would have been otherwise. Well, you know, I have to ask, and I'm not sure that if this was even part of your research, I know in the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a huge controversy about segregation and public amusements in Boston from roller rinks to movie theaters to any public space for congregation. Do you have a sense of whether Wonderland was open to all or if it was de facto segregated? Well, I have found absolutely nothing relating to that. There's there's nothing in there that suggests that it was, although that I admit that doesn't mean that it wasn't. Still, considering that you had attractions like Darktown and the South Before the War and Matthew Henson, it it, it boggles the mind to think that you wouldn't let black people in to see this, too. The existence of minstrel shows wouldn't have been a mystery to anyone, white or black, at the time. It would have just no, been part no. of the background of entertainment in Boston, I guess. Right. And minstrel shows were a big attraction of the last two years, as was uh, there was a minstrel show. It was adapted from a 19th century minstrel show. And you couldn't imagine somebody putting this on today. Although I found the script, and it's interesting to read through it because the script – is not written in dialect as I would expect it to be, but it's so obviously meant to be part of a minstrel show with people in blackface that they must have been expected to improvise their own accents. Well, like I said, all this uh, degrading and racist things happened the years before, but at least the last year you had a very positive image of, of Matthew Henson as not only the explorer, but the first man to the North Pole. That's pretty impressive. I don't think anybody realized when the park opened on Bunker Hill Day, June 17th, but when it closed on Labor Day, 1910, it was closing for the last time. Plenty of people realized that because there were ads in the newspaper leading up to this, selling off stuff from Wonderland. <laughs> they, as, so even before the park closed, even the, before the closed. assets were up for sale. Yeah, I, You mentioned earlier that there was a tethered balloon. Yes, the last year, one of the attractions was a tethered balloon. You could go for a balloon ride. And we actually have a description of somebody who did it, which is pretty neat. But weeks before the park closed, there's an ad selling the balloon. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the rest of the assets as the park closed? Leaving aside the land, everything that could be sold off of the land, what what became of that? People wanted to buy the land. Um, there was a fellow who had arranged before the park was closed even, uh, Solomon Cirque, he wanted to put in an, an ice plant there. And uh, he was assured because it had its own uh, pure water supply, fresh water supply, that he'd be able to pump out enough water to make ice in his uh, electrically refrigerated plant. And it turns Which out- Which was a, a new thing at the time, going from ice houses to electric refrigeration. It's amazing to me that there was fresh water. I mean, this is in, a, this is in the middle of what, practically a salt marsh. Somehow or other, though. They were able to get water because they used the fresh water for filling the lagoon and Annette Kellerman's uh, diving uh, pool. As a self-promotional plug, I will refer our readers back to episode 177 if they want to know why there might have been fresh water available at Wonderland. That that episode talks about an artesian sediment under Boston Harbor. So 
that was done at the very beginning of the 19th century. There was a uh, a well dug on Long Wharf on Boston Harbor, but that talks about the various layers of sediment, including one with a trapped aquifer. Whoa, that's neat. That would explain. Uh, but it didn't produce enough for his ice plant, and he sued them, and so that didn't get built. And then over the next 10 years, two other groups came in and said they were going to develop it for homes, and that never happened either. I'm sure what happened is they sold off a lot of the things. The Mirandi Proctor oven that was inside the restaurant must have gotten sold to somebody else. All that copper wiring that was used to light the park must have been fabulously valuable, and that got used. The wood that was used for the Lamarcus Thompson Scenic Railway, uh, there was a company that got rights to that, and they continued selling it off for the next 20 years. And a lot of the houses and things were built in there used that stuff. It's possible that the Velvet Coaster ended up on the boulevard. I'm not quite sure. There's a there's a newspaper account that talks about both of the roller coasters being sold. So I assume the other one went someplace. I haven't been able to find out what happened to the shoot the shoots. They took down as much of something like the Hellgate as they could. The hole in the ground was still there, and one of the sad things that happened in the years following is that a boy who was playing fell in, hit his head on one of the boards there. The hole was full of water, and he drowned. They got him out and tried to revive him, but they weren't successful. Yeah, terrible. Um, a miniature golf course went up on uh, on the site. They put up a bicycle racing course track there. And I think that bicycle racing track ultimately became the track at Wonderland Race, race Course. The dog track. Yes, the dog track. So did the people behind the original Wonderland Park have anything to do with the dog track or the Wonderland Ballroom or the Wonderland Tea Station? Any of the other ways that name was used? No, no, no. The Wonderland Ballroom that was Wonderland Park was not where the later Wonderland Ballroom went up. The Greyhound track went up 25 years after Wonderland closed. All the people who had been involved in Wonderland went on to other uh, exploits elsewhere. Some of them continued to work up and down the boulevard, as I said. The fellow who did the the Fire and Flame show ended up going elsewhere, but he also came back and he put up something in Virginia Beach. And I just learned shortly before uh, the book went out that uh, he ended up working in an auto shop within within stone's throw of where Wonderland had been in his old age. I was shocked, even just looking at the the cover of the book, to realize how short lived the park at Wonderland was, given how sort of long the cultural shadow of the park has been. The park closed in 1910, but there were amusements on the beach for decades. What was the boardwalk like after Wonderland? Well, we didn't really have a boardwalk in Revere Beach. You had the boulevard. But it had all sorts of things that went in after that. Like I said, there were more Lamarcus Thompson Scenic Railways. There were a lot of fun houses that went up. There were several roller coasters. In fact, Guy Traver, who built the the Circle Swing at Wonderland, that was his first big success of the Circle Swing, went on to become one of the premier roller coaster designers. And he built two roller coasters in Revere Beach. The Cyclone, which was the one that was one of the last things to go. But he also built one called the Lightning, that was one of the scariest roller coasters ever built. It's one of the fastest. It was built out of steel when most people were making wooden roller coasters. And the steel of the time wasn't really up to it. It would, when the, when the tra- trains went over, sometimes they would shear the heads off the bolts. That's not a good thing. 
I've I've heard the lightning referred to as a place that a young man would take his girlfriend if he got his girlfriend in a family way and and wanted her not to be. Yeah, that's the, the take her for a ride. Actually, they all said that about the cycle. Right, right. The lightning, right? Yep. But the lightning, the only place where the track was horizontal was where you got on and off. Every place else, it was tilted. You look at pictures of it; it's amazing that that they had something built like that back then. That's terrifying. Yep. They also put in like the Derby Racer and the the Dodgems that I would have called bumper cars down New Jersey, um, and awful lot of other uh, attractions up and down the beach. It went on throughout the forties, and then it was kind of dying at the end of the forties. But then the Blue Line went through and gave it a new lease on life, and. Wonderland continues in the amusement area up through the 60s. It wasn't until about 1970 that it really died. I know that counterfactuals are hard. There's no crystal ball. But do you think that Wonderland would have survived longer if it hadn't been for the Panic of 1907? I think it probably would have, especially if they'd learn a little bit more financial discipline. It's not guaranteed. The guy Floyd Thompson has a parallel, a guy by the name of Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood. Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood is mostly forgotten today, but he is the guy who built Disneyland. He's been expunged from the Disney records uh, because he got in a tiff with Walt. But he built Disneyland, and after that, he went on to build other parks elsewhere in the country. He built one in the Denver area. He built one in New York City that was bigger than Disneyland called Freedom Land. I went to it three times as a kid. And up here in New England, he built something called Pleasure Island in Wakefield. All of his parks, except he was involved in uh, the building of Six Flags, too. That one survives, but that wasn't only him. All of the parks he built himself closed within a few years. Freedom Land lasted three. The one in Denver only lasted a couple of years. Pleasure Island lasted the longest of any of them, and they know it only lasted 10 years. But he did the same thing that... Thompson and Wonderland people had done, he had big acts coming in, big name acts, and they had to be paid. And I think that contributed to their downfall. So even without a panic, if you're, if you're, if you're not careful with your money, your park can still close down. I'd like to think Wonderland would have survived longer, but it's not guaranteed, like you say. And just to do one more what if, if you don't mind, what what if there had been a Boston and Maine station right outside the gate? Oh, that would have made a big difference, I think. That's what they were hoping for. If you look at both the conceptual paintings they did, they imagined there was going to be a railroad stop right there. And if that was the case, it would have been easier to get to than taking the ferry and then taking the narrow gauge. But even if you took the narrow gauge, you still had to walk because it wasn't exactly at an narrow gauge station. So where was the closest station? Uh, well, there are two about equidistant stations. There's one down in Crescent Beach, and there's one up about where the bathhouse was, I think. It was a walk. People are lazy, like I said. If there had been a railroad station right there, that would have made a difference. Especially, I guess, if you didn't have to walk past all the competing attractions on the beach to get there. Absolutely. And you could have gone straight up from Boston without having to take the ferry, I think. Your final chapter is basically made up of sort of brief summaries, so the the lives of the main characters that were introduced in the book after Wonderland. Of all those personalities, is there a postscript that's your favorite? Oh, boy, there's so many of them there. Probably my favorite one is about um, the very end of Chiquita and, and her husband, because they were convinced he only wanted her for her money, and... Uh, she was the center of a cause célèbre in Boston 
when he finally caught up with Frank Bostock, the guy who was managing her and who he was convinced was, was taking advantage of her. Uh, they eloped, they got married, they would, Bostock wanted him to get divorced, but they stuck together. Uh, they escaped from him twice. And uh, finally, she went off on her own and she said, I don't like your show, I don't like this, and I don't like you. And that was before she came to Wonderland. She was managing her own act by that point. But they stayed together for the rest of her life. And he wrote a piece of music that I swear sounds like it uh, It was de dedicated to her. And uh, after that, he went off and joined the band again as he had before he had been with her. It's a very poignant story. Is there anything you wish I had asked about today? You, you really do have to read the story of uh, Henry Petit, the guy who invented Love's Journey, uh, the sort of tunnel of love, but it was a high-tech tunnel of love. And he also, he finds love on his own right, who, ride, right? Who, married, who found his bride on the Love's Journey, and what happened afterwards. If people want to learn more about Wonderland and your research, or if they want to follow you and your work online, where should they be looking for that? All right, there are two places. One of them is my Wonderland site. That's lostwonderland.com with a hyphen between Lost and Wonderland. The other one is my general site, my older site, that has all my writings. If you Google the writings of Stephen R. Wilk, it will take you there. That includes my other writings, and I have um, three other books out and a fourth one coming out in uh, February. I also have an awful lot of genre publications in uh, history, in mythology, uh, mystery, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. We'll make sure to link to both those sites in the show notes this week so people can find those. Okay, great. Stephen Wilk, I just want to say thank you so much for spending more time than we had bargained for talking about Wonderland with me today. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about Wonderland, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 210. We'll have links to Dr. Wilk's websites where you can find all the photos that didn't make it into the book as well as more information about Stephen and his other work. Plus, we'll have an affiliate link for you to buy the book on Amazon and support us with a tiny fraction of the cover price. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>